Welcome to this edition of Free Speak, a podcast of the Namibia Media Trust, and I'm Gwen Lister. Free speech versus the subject of hate speech, racism and insult, and of course the role of social media, is a very topical subject right now. With me today to try and work through and make sense of some of these complex issues, and to look at how to elevate what we can do in terms of what one could call rules of engagement on digital platforms is Dr. Admaya Mare, a senior lecturer at NUST in journalism studies and a known social media expert. Here in Namibia, against the backdrop of a global resurgence in the Black Lives Matter movement, which was sparked by the murder of George Floyd by US police, questions around the lynching post in the coastal town of Henty's Bay was the spark which unleashed an at times no holds barred outcry on social media about statues and symbols of our colonial past and still prevalent incidences of racism in the country. This culminated in youth organized online petitions, including the hashtag gallows must fall, as well as another farewell Kurt which demanded the removal of a statue of Kurt von Francois, former German colonial commissioner who oversaw the Hornkrantz massacre of mainly women and children. In the wake of these petitions, silent protests against racism, also encompassing gender-based violence and police brutality, took place in the capital. Online platforms have given people a voice they never had before the onset of the digital era. And while these fora are sometimes used as an amplifier of progressive views opposed to racism and injustice among others, they are also very fertile breeding ground for hate speech and insult. Welcome. Thank Admire. you so much, Gwen, for having me. Thank you. Admire, perhaps we could start off by just directly asking the question of you. How does one define hate speech, which would obviously include racism. Okay, thank you so much. So in layman's terms, the definition of hate speech is around you know, any form of communication, be it written, verbal, or even behavior that is insulting, that is derogatory towards a particular you know, group, be it based on you know, gender, it can be based on, uh, on sexual orientation, can be based on race, tribe, ethnicity, you name it. So essentially that's what it is all about. But we have seen that in other countries they've also tried to, to tighten it a bit and focus more on the issues around sexual orientation which are increasingly becoming very, very pronounced in our modern day societies. Okay. What, what do you think, where would one draw the line or should one draw the line between free speech and online hate speech, if at all? It's very difficult to draw the line, but mostly when, when, when lawyers deal with these issues, it's around intention, the intention to cause harm, the intention to cause harm towards a particular group of people, not just, you know, it, it shouldn't be between you and me, you know, just maybe, you know, we are friends and all of a sudden probably we have, you know, turned offensive against each other. It's beyond yes. that. It's about a, a particular group that you are targeting in terms of the words or the action that you're actually projecting at that particular point in time. 
In your monitoring of social media, and I gather you probably do quite a lot of that in the course of your work, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or any other platform, what is your assessment of hate speech in Namibia at the moment? Is there a problem? We obviously have the recent examples of a few white residents of Walther's Bay going online and saying very uh, abusive things about uh, black compatriots. Uh, to what extent do you think this is really a problem in Namibia? I think it, it's, a, it's a problem because generally if you look at it, and most of it usually is done under the use of pseudonyms, masked identities, social online, where people can always you know, hide under these, you know, these, uh, these uh, identities actually to cause and insult other people. So it's, it's, it's there, but mo most of the time what we've also seen is that the use of pseudonyms actually makes it even more problematic even to police it because you don't know who is behind that particular masked identity and that's what is usually makes it uh, very difficult even for the police even to prosecute people who are on the wrong end of the, of the law. Why do you think in a country which is free, essentially, like Namibia, uh, do people resort to anonymous identities on social media when they're able, one can fully understand in, a, in an autocracy or draconian society that uh, citizens would be afraid of exercising their voices online. In Namibia, not so. So why would there be such a problem with anonymity rather than putting their names on their posts and standing by their opinions? I think the, the, if most of the people actually know the consequences of actually you know, engaging in hate speech. So obviously, if you want to, to, to insult somebody and also then protect yourself at the same time, obviously pseudonym uh, becomes the, 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 the easy way out. It's a soft target that you can always use to, 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 to protect yourself. But again, I would say that even people who don't even use it, you know, pseudonyms actually engage in hate speech, but do so without knowing the consequences of actually you know, transgressing uh, certain uh, constitutional rights that are enshrined in the, in the Namibian constitution. So we have seen, especially around you know, racial, you know, tribal slayers, you know, right. tribal stereotyping in, in Namibia, especially to say you know, the Vambos are like this, you know, the Hereros are like this. It's, it's, so, it's so pronounced. People don't think that they're actually transgressing, but that's what you see most of the time. And you ask yourself, but why do people do such kind of things in a progressive society but you can realize that we tend to have these identities that are based on tribe and you know you know ethnicity very steeped in our everyday life to the point that we don't understand that first and foremost we must be Namibians before we become a Vambo or become a, you know a Herero. Exactly but it is as you say it's not just racism but also tribalism which yeah. which is a real problem out mm. there mm. Um, and that is also these are the open groups when we look at things like WhatsApp mm. the more closed social media um, Apps, I think the problem, according to a lot of people, is even worse out there. Admire, maybe moving on from that, the logical question to the proliferation of hate speech is, is, is what can be done about it? In a sense, how can the notion of hate speech be reconciled with freedom of expression, a guaranteed fundamental right in most democracies, including our own? I think the big fear of many free expression advocates is that obviously if we do have laws or regulation to govern hate speech, that these would be used to stifle political dissent. Others, of course, would argue, let hate speech run. Let it be out there in the open, in the sunlight, where we can see it, identify it for what it is. What are your views on legislation and regulations around something like hate speech? 
I would say that uh, the best way to go about it, if we have to go the regulatory route, then we have to make sure that everything that we are going to do is within the, the limits of necessity and proportion, uh, proportionate. Right. Anything that goes beyond that becomes something else. And I've seen that in, in auto, autocratic uh, you know, regimes, you know, they usually use this uh, as part and parcel of actually trying to deal with political dissent, but also uh, coming hard on opposition uh, political parties. So I, I, I would say that we need to balance the, the issues here to say, if we want to go the route of regulation, for example, you know, in South Africa, they, they, hate, they hate speech and they hate crimes, uh, you know, bill that they was passed in 2016. If you look at that, it it it, it tries in many ways to to make sure that whoever transgresses the law actually can either be fined or actually be jailed. And we have seen the South African Human Rights uh, Commission actually being you know proactive in terms of dealing with some of the issues that have actually come on board as a result of social media posts. But I don't think that is the same thing that we are seeing in Namibia. For example, we do have the Racial Discrimination and Prohibition Act of, 19, of 1991. But if you look at our many people have been prosecuted and even successfully prosecuted. There's none up to now. And Absolutely. that also raises serious issues in terms of, is the, the law fit for purpose or is it not uh, fit for purpose and what needs to be done to make sure that it really deals with the issues that are at the center of uh, most of the social media posts right now in Namibia? I think that's a very good point. Um, the other thing is, of course, the, the, the definition, and I haven't looked at the South African example, but to define hate speech is very difficult, isn't it? One would imagine that making a statement like, I hate whites, is, is not hate speech. Not. Um, but if you had to say, kill all whites, yeah. that would cross the line. So again, the nuances in this are very, very important and which will make it very difficult to prosecute. And as you rightly say, the Prohibition of Racial Discrimination Act has only really been used a handful of times, as far as I know, um, since it was, it was passed. And it hasn't been successful. And I think, again, this uh, racist um, Facebook post uh, from this woman in Walfus Bay, they tried to charge her in terms of that act, but I'm not sure whether it will be successful or not. So again, as you say, maybe in some respects, um, there is the argument we don't need special laws to deal with hate speech. Mm -hmm. If, for example, I defame you on social media, there are existing laws yeah. in which terms of which I can lay a charge against you. Yeah. So there might be some areas where one could successfully prosecute hate speech or defamation online, but there are other areas which are far more uh, can one say murky? Yeah, very murky. I would say that it's very murky out there, especially given the fact that the racial uh, discrimination and prohibition act that we are talking about was, you know, it was promulgated in 1991, then revised in 1998. Correct. But up to now, so many things have happened. So yeah. many things have happened. We have had Facebook has come on board, Twitter has come on board, Instagram, but all these were not there in 1998. So you Absolutely. look at it, how do you then use a law that was promulgated in 1998 to deal with issues that are happening in 2020? It becomes very complicated. So it would, it would speak to the fact that one may need to look at that law once again. Yes. Um, admire the, obviously one of the things is the huge, uh, what many people saw when social media and digital online media came into being was how wonderful this could be for democracy, for example, because it's giving voice to people who never had voice before. An article in Wired magazine references how, for example, in the 60s, the civil rights movement in the US needed institutional structures uh, to make things work especially protest, you know, you needed to go to a lot of effort 
to get people together. Nowadays, for example, with Black Lives Matter, said one activist, social media could serve as a source of live, raw information. It could summon people to the streets and coordinate their movements in real time. And it could swiftly push back against spurious media narratives with a force of a thousand retweets. We've seen this on a few occasions in Namibia, for example, where Twitter has been used to positive effect to mobilize youth, to, to organize the recent demonstrations against uh, racism, gender-based violence, and police brutality. Mm -hmm. uh, yet at the same time, racism, toxicity, cyberbullying, and other evils are alive and well on social media. And I speak from experience, because I've been a targeted on Twitter for some time now, and it's not a pleasant experience. Um, and also, of course, the, the local explosive Facebook posts mm -hmm. about racism. So how can we ensure that these digital platforms are used as a force for good rather than the contrary? It's a very interesting issue that you've just raised. But for me, what I, what I want to say is that we, we need to look at technology as a double-edged sword. In as much as it allows us to do good, it also allows us to do evil. So it depends on the user. The end user at the end of the day is the one who's going to decide whether they want to propagate racism through social media or they want to promote you know, unity, peace building, and also make sure that society you know, is, is cohesive as possible. But essentially what I think needs to happen is we have just been talking about, I think in as much as we, we, we need to make sure that social media companies also come hard on people that actually transgress uh, over the rules of engagement that they've put in place, but we also need to make sure that we also have the right kind of laws that can actually, for example, the cyber crimes bill. I think we, we, we do need that, but if whatever form it, it, might, it might come, it must also right. be within the bounds of necessity and proportionate so that it doesn't go beyond the, 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 the issues that are enshrined in our constitution. It must not be able to then you know, take away the rights that we have for, in terms of you know, freedom of free speech, for example. It must be within the bounds. That's what I would say. So certainly we would need some kind of regulation around cyber crimes, but again, that cyber crimes must not be used actually to outlaw uh, free speech at the end of the day. So the, a balance must be struck uh, as, as we try and uh, deal with these issues. Yeah, and especially not, as you say, to erode uh, rights to free expression, free expression online. Yes. Um, Admire the, you know, there's a lot of criticism, particularly from social media these days, about the role of the mainstream media, right? Um, but what a lot of people don't realize is, is that there is a code of conduct for media, with both online and off. And in essence, what it says about things like hate speech is that the media should not publish material which amounts to propaganda for war, which incites violence or advocates hatred based on race, ethnicity, religion, or gender, to that which constitutes incitement to cause harm. But while most mainstream media, and I think it's true to say, mm. adhere to these guidelines, the general public who are posting on Facebook and other apps don't feel any such obligation to refrain from threatening or abusive language, even incitement to violence at times. It's about more than media literacy, isn't it? Yeah. It also goes down to basic moral values and how you address other people, whether it's face-to-face, -face, whether it's through the medium of a newspaper, or whether it is on a digital medium. Any comments about that, Admai? Certainly. Uh, I think 
Online, we see an amplification of who you are in, in offline spaces pretty, pretty much. So right. who you are offline is also who you are online. It's, it's, it's really, the, the, the two really are not uh, you know, that you know, distinct in many ways. You'd realize that whatever you tend to do offline is what you end up doing also online. So right. it's an amplifi amplification of your, of your real life you know, be, you know, behavior or even your views in terms of life. So what I would say is that First and foremost, it demonstrates, you know, the moral, you know, our moral, you know, morality in general in society, how, how far it has been eroded. But also it demonstrates, again, the issues around lack of digital competences and also digital literacy in terms of what is required in online spaces. Because some think that there is a, a chasm between online and offline. So when I'm online, I'm a totally different person and when Correct. I'm offline. But Correct. it shouldn't be like that. It should be seamless it should be whatever you are offline should also what you are online and that's why we are saying people must also be free enough to express and also to use their own real names in this online space so that they can actually you know be able to defend the ideas if they have any idea to, to defend in the first place but what we've realized that some people don't even have the ideas to do to defend so they usually use pseudonyms anonymity to then defame other people to insult other groups of people because they want to, to, to protect themselves that way. So I also say that in that regard, then social media companies have a responsibility to make sure that they make sure that their platforms Absolutely. are as healthy as possible. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult for people to remain engaging in public discourse in such kind of spaces where there's lots of toxicity, but also a lots of uh, hate speech that is actually being spewed in this platform. Absolutely. And obviously something like trolling is made so much easier when uh, one is behind an anonymous account. The other thing is, Admire, just a quick question, the issue of bots. Mm. Um, obviously, it's a global uh, digital network, but to what extent is that a problem here in Namibia? Are there people who are sophisticated enough to be starting these bot factories, and, or, or has it not got to that point as yet? I think we have not yet gotten to that point yet, okay. but but certainly I, I see as we go towards the next election, certainly we are likely to start seeing a lot of bots being used uh, by mostly politicians, but also, you know, corporates also hiring bots so that they can also amplify and also advertise their, 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 their goods. Because remember, people are now running away from advertising in traditional media spaces and going on and on for online adverts. So obviously, when you push for online adverts, obviously, bots are likely to be become part and parcel of that uh, you know, you know, network of trying to push as much content and products uh, to people. Um, they also, according to what you've just said, or following on that, they're increasing calls to regulate social media networks. And you've mentioned that. Tech companies like Facebook and Google, for example, in view of the Cambridge Analytica scandal and growing public concerns about the impact of harmful social media content on mental health and the quality of public debate. Presently, the spread of fake news, disinformation and misinformation around the COVID-19 pandemic has been used by governments to proceed with such regulation. Mm -hmm. What are your views on this? I think it's a very concerning, uh, you know, recent development that we've watched uh, with keen interest. For example, here in Namibia recently, there was one person who was, uh, you know, said to have uh, circulated uh, fake news related to COVID-19. And of course, given the regulations that are there, that you are likely to be jailed or fined 2,000 Namibian dollars for doing that. That also yeah. raises serious problems. For me, the, the, the issue is that how do you, how do you determine, you know, it was, for example, if it's disinformation, if there's intention to cause harm or there's intention right. to cause harm. So how do we measure the intention to cause harm vis-a-vis -vis illiteracy or even people, somebody who doesn't know whether 
whatever they are circulating or forwarding is actually something that is harmful or something that is very you know misleading. You don't, you don't know. So the forwarding, and because sometimes it's, it's an issue of forwarding rather than actually producing the, the, the fake news. So how do you measure that intention? At what level? Is it at the level of forwarding? Is it at the level of production? And that raises serious problems because also the other issue that I just want to say is that going forward, how would we make sure that these regulations are not going to become permanent exactly. part, of our, part of our everyday exactly. life? Because if they see that it's working for, the, for whatever reason they think, then obviously it may be taken on board and they'll say, let's go on and proceed with these uh, fake news uh, regulations until forever. And that would have a chilling effect in terms of you know, political uh, free expression, but also even just general uh, you know, public uh, discussions on social media platforms. Absolutely, and I think this is a big uh, concern in many countries that like here we have a state of emergency which requires or gives the government additional powers in other countries, lockdowns and similar situations. And the point or the question people are answering is, okay, we can deal with this under COVID, but really are our rights going to be further eroded uh, down the line when all this is over? Uh, perhaps just very briefly, I want to ask you um, if our goal in all of this, which I imagine it would be, um, is to facilitate and foster a vision of a non-racial society. Do you think mainstream media, for example, are doing what is required in terms of fostering this vision in their coverage of race and identity politics? Or are they simply reproducing the biases inherent in Namibian society? If the latter, what do you think the media or the mainstream media can do to guide and to further the goal of tolerance? Okay, thanks. Uh, for that, I think what I've seen, you know, it's, it's very concerning because for me, what I've seen is that we tend to reproduce, you know, the biases right. and stereotypes in society right. rather than question them. And I think that's where the media is to play in more, you know, a more, in, you know, active role in terms of making sure that they push what probably one could actually say conflict-sensitive reporting, where you, you, you whatever you, you, you report, whenever you report about racial, you know, racial, you know, racial-related issues within a context, and even ethnic issues related to a society like Namibia, you question yourself. To what, to what extent are we actually you know, further eroding the, 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 you know, the, 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 the polarizing society, so Absolutely. to speak? If you are polarizing society, then you need to start questioning your reporting because ultimately you are not, you are not promoting you know, cohesion within society. So I think there is need for media organizations to start okay. thinking critically about con conflict-sensitive reporting, but also look at it critically and say, how do we want to make sure that we push and uh, promote a united Namibian uh, society that is free of racial discrimination, that is free of ethnic stereotypes and all these things. And how, how is our newspaper, newsroom and the newspaper going to make sure that we do that kind of you know, reporting that would push for that kind of thing? But right now what I've seen is more, more or less it's this reproduction of you right. know, politicians. You just take is what poli whatever politician has said and you take it as, as, as such without critically you know, engaging with it to what extent it can actually you know, tear apart a society. Because we've seen that happen in, 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 in Rwanda. We've seen it also happen in countries like Zimbabwe where you know, ethnic, various ethnic groups are, are clashing over issues because the media is actually amplifying those divisions Absolutely. rather than actually creating a, a space where they can actually heal and actually reconcile with each other. Absolutely. Very good point there. Admire. And, and maybe to follow on that, one of the things that really concerns me, um, particularly online, but it happens in, in mainstream media as well to a much lesser extent, is that I wonder at sometimes if the facts matter anymore. 
you know, we're approaching a time where now finally um, our ATI bill is being tabled in Parliament mm -hmm. and we look forward to seeing whether that is going to help people get access to good information so they can make informed choices about their lives. But then you look at what's happening on social media at times, and even if I revert to the issue of what sparked everything, which was this gallows issue, mm. um, at the end of the day, nobody was issue interested in the facts. Mm. And this is what worried me, that the lynching post in Henty's Bay was an awful symbol of what has happened in our past, in our German colonial past, um, with lynchings of black Namibians, which was horrific. But equally so, during the apartheid era, the death penalty was in force here, and many people were hanged um, in that era, which concluded in 1989. Um, but nobody really, a lot of people saw it as a place where people had actually physically been put to death. Mm -hmm. uh, and I tried to point out that we have enough horrors in our apartheid and colonial history not to have to fabricate things. So. It, it concerns me that where do we go if people are just not interested in the facts anymore on which to base their opinions. And that in turn fuels the toxicity because as soon as somebody tries to say, it's not actually like that in reality, it's like this, it, it, it just adds flames to the fire. So what do we do about how do we make facts count in all of this? That's, that's a very difficult one because some actually claim that we are now living in a post-truth world where right. facts no no longer matter. It's right. all about emotions, appealing right. to emotions. You know, being subjective. As long as you can whip up a lot of emotions within your you know closed spaces and then push it and come and do trolling on other people, it's a very unfortunate space where we find ourselves. But again, it, it demonstrates the problem that we have with filter bubbles and echo chamber where people of similar you know views usually gang up against other people, thereby pushing them, especially you can, you can easily be pushed out of you know, social media platforms when people gang up against you and pushing an emotional view on things rather than you know, using facts. So I would say that where we find ourselves, you know, the space where we find ourselves in, in as much as it requires some kind of regulation, but also, it also requires you know, dealing with the human being. I think it also has to go back to our morals as, as human beings to say, you know, what kind of a society do we need? Do we need a society where emotions are going to govern whatever we do? Or do we need to, re to, to go back to facts and allow facts to speak on be our behalf and allow right. other tolerant views also to, be, to, to, to come on board? And I think it's, it's, a very, it's, a very, it's not only an African problem, but it's a global problem. We've seen it in, 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 in the US with populist uh, politics around Trump. We've also seen it in, in Europe. It's also coming here in Africa. So I think going forward, I think it's, it's about, you know, Society must look back and take a, take, a, take a seat back and look at itself and say, what kind of a society do we want to become going forward, given the situation that we find ourselves where people are just using emotions rather than reason to, 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 to argue out issues. And that really concerns me uh, seriously. Right. Although it must be said that obviously when it comes to those very emotions you, you refer to, if you look at something, again, coming back to the Black Lives Matter movement, it is something real mm. and it is something tangible mm. and it is something that has to change mm. in the world. Mm. Um, and so if that is sometimes emot emotified, if that's the correct word, mm. um, there is probably justice in that because one needs to see change and have change in the world. But at the same time, to have a discussion that is really, um, as you say, respects the rights of others in the process mm. 
it would seem to me the solution is probably quite simple. Mm. And it really may be something along the lines of if everybody simply accepted that my rights end where yours begin, yeah. Yeah. that if we use that approach, whether it's in our day-to-day -day interactions with people or online, that in that way, I would not abuse or disrespect you. Uh, if everybody did that, maybe it would be a better world. But I don't know um, how we can get to that point. The other thing is, perhaps, does not a good approach lie in, some people think, not limiting free speech in any way, shape, or form, even though it may sometimes be virulent, offensive, mm. hateful, call it what you want, mm. but really to start educating people about human rights and the respect for diversity and tolerance of opposing views. And maybe this should start in schools, in the home, teaching people that you, if you're of one tribe, you do not denigrate people from another tribe. On the black-white spectrum, the same applies. Your final thoughts, my going forward on how we can really have a more emotionally, could I say mature, um, discussion on social media, that people need not be afraid of going there to express their views, to be bullied, to be victimized. How do we, how do we get that right? Okay. What are your ideas? Thanks. Uh, so as you have rightly pointed out, I think issues of rights and responsibilities are key here. So in as much as I have the right to free expression, but I also have a responsibility to tolerate your own, uh, your own, your own views and also to, to tolerate your own rights as, as, a, as a human being. So at the end of the day, we need to make sure that our rights should not encroach into other people and we also must be responsible enough in terms of what we speak. But I also want to just echo what you have said in terms of human rights education. I think civic education at a very elementary school, I think is a very important thing that we need to do beyond uh, digital literacy and digital competence skills that we are pushing for these days in terms of digital literacy campaigns. But we are saying that first and foremost, as a human being, you must know that you, you, have, you have a right to express yourself, but also not the right to, 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 to actually you know, denigrate and insult other people in, in the process. So in, in, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is that going forward, I think as a society, we need to look at ourselves critically and understand that we have got a responsibility to make sure that we coexist even online. If we can coexist offline, we must also coexist online. It shouldn't be an issue where online we are coex offline we are coexisting, but online we want to be very you know to, to we are we are we are always engaged in all these kinds of cyber wars, cyber bullying uh, you know initiatives. It, it doesn't it doesn't create a society that we want to live in. It doesn't create healthy public spheres that we all want to 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 share and actually share our views without uh, feeling that we are being pushed to the corner. Absolutely, and maybe just to conclude, I'd say that you know perhaps we all need to talk less and listen more. Um, and as, as we always say, think before you post, think before you tweet on social media, which I think still is, is very true. Um, and we should do it, all of us. Um, I think if we listened more, also as the Black Lives Matter movement indicates, if more white people were more sensitive mm -hmm. to the plight of black people globally, not only in the US, not only here on our subcontinent, but everywhere, that we would learn a, a lot more about one another and each other 
And that, I think, would lead to more understanding and tolerance as we move forward. So we can change the world, really, for the better. Certainly, certainly. I think we, we need to listen more. I think, but listening has always been the difficult part, sure. of, part of the communication right. uh, you know, you know, landscape. So people want to talk, but they want to talk over other people. They want to, you know, to, to be the, they want to shout more rather than listen to what other people are saying. So that's why sometimes, you know, certain things that are considered very, you know, very, 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 very important to other, to other groups of people are, 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 are not taken seriously. They are actually marginalized as, as lived experiences. But this lived experience, we need to listen, we need to accept them, but also to validate them. Otherwise, if we don't, then that's when we run the risk of actually saying we are, we are, we are, we are speaking over other people and we are also not listening to, to their concerns about certain things. So I think listening is, is, is one, one such an important uh, aspect of the communication uh, you know, loop that we need to, to, to take uh, seriously as we, as we continue with our conversations online and offline. Thank you for that, Admire. And last, maybe lighter note, I see that uh, Twitter has now introduced voice notes. So it will be interesting to see how, when we talk about talking and listening, how that will play out going forward. Interestingly, I think that will certainly be interesting given that there are so many other digital influencers that are likely to, to have more access to, to these uh, voice notes and to speak more using voice notes compared to people that have to listen to, to, to that. So it would be an interesting space to watch out. I agree. I thank you very much, Admire. We could talk for hours. This has been a fascinating discussion and I look forward to chatting to you again in the future. Thank, thank, you, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your invitation.